0: You know, I've been uh, thinking about some of the differences between friends and family lately. It's been said that friends are the family you choose, and I suppose there's some truth to that. You know, when we make friends with someone, it's usually because we like being with them, right? Uh, We share many of the same perspectives and interests. I mean, we tend to gravitate toward people who think like us and act like us. We might even dress Alike, it's fairly normal human behavior. But family, family's a whole other matter. Families are often made up of vastly different people. Even within an immediate family, take siblings for instance, can be radically different from one another. And then, of course, there are the major outliers: those aunts or uncles who have, shall we say, an unsettling reputation. You know, good old Uncle Amos, who when you go to the family reunion, he's the one everyone tries to avoid because he tends to corner people. And if he does happen to corner you, he speaks about two inches from your face and uh, won't stop talking. I uh, speak from personal experience on that. Sorry, Uncle Amos. But here's the thing, while there are certainly strained and very difficult family relationships, even to the point where we must put up healthy boundaries, most families are able to move beyond those basic differences that they have and strange eccentricities because there's something deeper that ties families together. Family members, Who might hold vastly different perspectives, who might not approve of half the things we say or do, are often the very first ones to come alongside of us when we're in need. Uh, And in doing that, sometimes even making great sacrifices. What is it about families that makes this possible? Well, last week, Pat talked about how we're not just a collection of individuals who happen to attend the same church. are the church. The church is made up of people, and we're connected to each other. We care for one another. We take responsibility for one another. We are, in a very real way, a family, a spiritual family united by the vision and purpose that we believe God has given us. And the way we've come to express that vision, that purpose, is that Jesus has called us to grow together as a community who worship God, love with His love, and serve with His grace. And like families, the church is often made up of radically different people. I mean, if we're completely honest, we would probably never connect with with the majority of the people who uh, attend this church other than in this environment. Like if we were out in, in some other type of situation, we might never have connected with these people, and yet these are the people that we give our very lives for. These people, this Family. And while we might very well develop amazing lifelong friendships in the church, I mean, Kat and I met our very best friends in this church 16 years ago. The church is much more like a family. Because in the church, we're pushed beyond uh, the comfortable into relationships that might challenge us, that might be challenging for us. Like families, we share in both the beauty and the heartbreak of each other's lives even though we might vote differently or root for rival sports teams. So in the end, we, we gather together and we worship week in and week out, year in and year out. We worship God, we love with His love, we serve with His grace. What is it about the church that makes this possible? Well, as we continue this short series where we're talking about the vision that ties us together, I want to share what I believe is one of the key elements that makes becoming a spiritual family possible. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we uh, have the honor and privilege to gather together with these people to worship you, to to learn how to love well, to, to be given opportunities to serve with your grace. I pray that your spirit would be working within our lives to be shaping us into the image of your son, Jesus. I pray that you'd uh, pour out your blessing on the reading of the scriptures and the rest of this morning, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning, instead of focusing on just one main passage, uh, we're going to take a little tour through some scripture that will hopefully leave us with a very simple truth. I want to start out in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. The Gospel of Mark tells us this. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It was such a big crowd. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. Jumping to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, "'Your mother and brothers are outside. They're looking for you.' "'Who are my mother and my brothers?' he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, "'Here are my mother and my brothers.'" Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, let's be honest. This is one of those passages that I think sometimes we don't really know what to do with. I mean, no disrespect to Jesus, but this is your family, man. Like, like and he just kind of blows them off. Oh, those people outside? Who really are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks at all the different people gathered around him in that house, and he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. In fact, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What? What do you think the crowd's reaction, the people who gathered into that house, who maybe even knew that, that his family was out there looking for him, calling for him, and he says this to them, what do you think their reaction was to that? In fact, put yourself in that crowd for a moment. Imagine that you're there in that packed house. You're there with neighbors, maybe friends. There might be someone sitting next to you who you don't like very much, others with whom you might have stark disagreements with, and yet you've all gathered into this house around this one person, Jesus Jesus is the reason you've decided to pack yourself in there like sardines, shoulder to shoulder, because there's something incredibly compelling about His words, the way He speaks of God, and the radical change He brings to people's lives. And so you're willing to set aside any differences that you might have with those that you're with in order to be with Jesus together. Somehow, being in His presence allows you to transcend those differences. And then Jesus drops that bombshell when he says that you're all his family. There's something that ties you all together that allows you to be a spiritual human family. And that one thing, Jesus says, is pursuing God's will. Seems simple enough, right? But then that begs the question, what's God's will? (laughs) That question, in my opinion, can be often a doozy for people. Many followers of Jesus spend their whole lives wrestling with the question, what is God's will? In fact, some people I've talked to seem to be even tormented by that question. You know, how can I know God's will? What if I get it wrong? You know, they live in constant state of fear What if I make a mistake or make one wrong move and somehow miss God's will for my life? I mean, if there really is a God who cares about what humans do with their lives and our impact on the world, then that's a critical question to ask. I mean, what does God want from us? And knowing the answer to that would be incredibly important in how we end up living our lives, the decisions we make, how we treat one another, how we spend our time and our money and so on. So let me ask you this question. Do you know God's will for your life? Do you know God's will? Well, you might be interested in what Jesus had to say about this, because this is a question that, believe it or not, already has an answer. We don't have to wonder about it. Jesus was once asked straight up, of all the things that God might want from us. What's the most important? What's the one thing that God desires? In other words, what's God's will? Now, there are a ton of commandments that we find in the Bible. If you open up your Bible at the very beginning, the first five books are called the Torah or the law. For example, it's here that you'll find the Ten Commandments in which God says, don't steal, don't murder, and so on. Well, the ancient rabbis counted up all of these commandments And there were 613 commandments that they found. And that's not counting the New Testament, where we could probably add to that. But the rabbis debated, well, which of these 613 commandments is the most important? Which one was the core? Is it more important not to steal? Is it more important not to murder? Which commandment, if I get it right, means that I've gotten everything else right? that I'm living in the will of God. Well, one day, as recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a man with what we might say a PhD in religious studies asked Jesus, what's your take? What do you think is the most important? Command, Jesus. In other words, what's God's will? And Jesus answers him immediately. This is Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, and that term, the law and the prophets, is is kind of like a bounded phrase. If you were here last week, Pat talked about that. It's kind of seen as a whole. Basically refers to the Scriptures. So we can say the entire Bible hangs on these two commandments. So if you want something to hang your hat on, something that you can say that you know for sure what God desires of you, what God wants from you, it's this. Love God, love others, period. End of story. And you know, that shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, in, in John, the Apostle John, in his epistle, talks about how God is love. The very essence, the the, the very fullness of God's character is love. And if that's the case, then it would make sense that that's the very core thing that God would want of us, what He cares about, what God wants, what His heart towards us is. And it's not just a love for God, a vertical thing that can exclude the needs of people. The two most important commands go together, like your right and left hand. When you love God and love others, you've just offered up the one thing that best describes God's will for your life. Get this, and you've got it. Love God, love others. I don't know about you, that's good news to me. It's good news because what God asks of us, one is pretty cool, love, but it, it's also not overly complicated. I think we, we tend to overcomplicate things, which is you know how you get all sorts of religious stuff going on. But it's actually quite simple. Learn to love well. And I've said this in years past. I've said that if we just focused on that one thing, learning to love well, we would have the rest of our lives to work on that. And that would be enough. Now, saying it's simple, is different than saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy because love can mean all sorts of things to all sorts of people, and we all know from our lo- actual lived experience that loving can be very hard, especially when it comes to family and even our spiritual family. So, what's our path? what does it look like to love well? How can we know if we're loving well? Are there some kind of benchmarks? Is there something that we can that we can look at and, and, and use to examine our own lives? Well, this is where the genius of Jesus comes into play. He shows us the way. There's the famous passage, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We sing the song, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, when Jesus says, I am the way, it's not just that if we believe in Jesus, we get to go to heaven when we die. It's that I literally am the way, like follow my example. That's why we're considered followers of Jesus because He shows us how to love. He shows us how to love well, which is why we believe we're called to love with His love. Not just love in general, but love the way Jesus loved. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus even said, love others as I have loved you. So allow me a moment to lay out two ways that we see love expressed in the life of Jesus that I believe can act as signposts on our journey to loving well. The first signpost is the incarnation. In John's gospel, it opens up by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, or we might say became embodied, and made His dwelling Among Us. I recently heard a a story that a father told on public radio, and he tells it like this. He said, One day I'm outside, I'm doing yard work. When I do yard work, I relax, I think. I go inside and I tell my wife, I've got an idea. I'm going to Denver to find our son. She looks at me like I'm nuts. Maybe I am, but I love my son. In an essay recounting this event, the father talks about arriving in Denver and finding his son, and he writes this. He says, he has no idea that I'm walking toward him. I can see that he can't stand up without the support of a building. He would appear drunk to most people. To his dad, though, I know from past experience, sadly, he's on heroin, heavy. I go up to him, he starts to turn his back to me. I don't care, I just embrace him, and hold him as hard as I can. And for the next week, he stayed on the streets with his son, living on the streets with his son, unshaven face, dirty clothing. He eats sandwiches handed out by the volunteers, swats away rats at night. At one point, he opens up to his son, and he's just real honest, and he says, son, if you die, your mom and dad die with you. Now, his story doesn't have a nice, neat ending, storybook ending. After a long and difficult week, he goes back home to his wife. His son ends up in jail, not for the first time, mind you. But to his dad, that's a relief because he knows that at least his son is alive. And he shared this experience. In fact, he went and... and participated in this experience. He goes to live on the streets with his son, and then he wanted to share that experience with others because he wanted to convey what it's like, what it's really like to be homeless and hopeless. Well, this is a form of what I would call radical empathy. Now, empathy is defined as literally feeling with someone else being able to put yourself in their place as if you were them. That's what the father tries to do. He goes to Denver to live the life of a homeless person with his son, to literally feel what his son feels, to see from his son's perspective. Radical empathy. And empathy has been shown to be in so critical, important part of what it takes to love others well, not only in word but in action, what what leads to compassion. And when when one looks at the incarnation, what is it if not the most radical form of empathy this world has ever known? I mean, think about God literally takes on human nature, becomes embodied, becomes one of us, literally putting... God's self in our place as if he were one of us and actually living as one of us, literally feeling our feelings, literally seeing things from our perspective. If you ever wonder if God knows what it's like to experience all the beauty and the heartbreak of human life, the incarnation says a resounding yes. I understand. And I don't know about you, but that changes things because it's really hard to love someone if you can't first understand someone from their perspective. So I think one of the best ways we can grow in loving with the love of Jesus is by growing in radical empathy for one another. Now, what might that look like? Well, it means that first of all, we can try to embrace rather than escape the differences in the church. We can make an effort to see things from other people's perspectives, and even by the grace of God, allow ourselves to feel what other people are feeling, to really try to understand. This doesn't mean that we're all going to end up alike, not at all. It means though that even though we might be vastly different, we at least understand each other. We might not agree with one another but we can at least understand and respect and honor one another, which is part of what it means to love one another. It means that it really is possible to hold this crazy tension, this seemingly impossible dream that we have here of having a diverse spiritual family who can worship, love, and serve side by side, where with Jesus we can say, here, here are my brothers and sisters my mothers, my fathers. Is this easy? Not at all. And that leads me to the second signpost, sacrifice. 1 John 3.16, not to be confused with John 3.16, this was the the verse that Kat and I had at our wedding. This is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? Take a look. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dr. Jack McConnell grew up in the last house in the hollow coal mining community of Crumpler, West Virginia in the Great Depression. His father never earned more than $150 a month, never even owned a car. Yet during the Depression, McConnell's parents often served lunch to 40 to 50 people a day. Drifters riding the rails saw a mark on McConnell's front gate which indicated that they could find food here. This was a safe place to come and be fed. We didn't have much, McConnell says, but we had a big garden and they could pick corn and tomatoes and we would find a chicken somewhere and make a meal for everyone. He said that example made a lasting impression on me. As a doctor, he started a clinic in South Carolina that provides free medical care to those who can't afford it, and the success he has had in treating thousands in his community has led to the formation of more than 50 similar clinics throughout the nation. When asked, what, when asked how he likes working for practically nothing, he responded, I make a million dollars a day. What I get from this clinic you can't buy with money. I believe that what McConnell learned early in life was how to love with the love of Jesus. He learned how to practically live out the kind of love demonstrated on the cross. One where we willingly give the gift of self to others. As Pope John Paul II said, love in a word is, a, is the gift of self. This is a form of what I would call radical sacrifice. And while we might not be in a situation where we're called upon to feed dozens of people from our home or even give up our life for the sake of another, it might mean setting aside, sacrificing, we might say, certain ideologies or long-held perspectives in order to grow in understanding one another. See, The sacrifice, the radical sacrifice and the radical empathy work hand in hand in order to have radical empathy, often we need to sacrifice. We might need to sacrifice our need to always be right or to to try to win an argument. It might mean singing a worship song some Sundays that you don't like very much. It might mean hearing a sermon or teaching that makes us feel uncomfortable or challenged. And when Things seem tough. It might mean sacrificing our desire to run away and find a community that's much more comfortable. It's a lot easier to go to some place where everybody thinks alike, everybody acts alike, but to be in a place where we're challenged, where we're, where, where we're pushed and yet loved, that's a beautiful thing. Loving the way of Jesus that's not easy. But when we practice both radical empathy and radical sacrifice, we can be sure that we are leaning into the will of God as well as helping to give birth to a spiritual family that has the power to show the world a better way. And the world right now so desperately needs to see the Jesus way lived out in spiritual families like this. Amen? So let me just, let's just take a minute And I have a question I want you to pose to God. A way to just kind of begin reflecting on what I've just said. How might God be inviting you to practice both empathy and sacrifice in this season of your life? And in particular, as a part of this community, this church family. How might God be inviting you to practice empathy and sacrifice in this season of your life. and in particular in this church. Maybe we just take a moment. you can even close your eyes and just, just offer that up to God. What's the invitation for me or for my family? Maybe the Spirit might, might uh, give you a picture of somebody that you know here or a picture of someone you don't know here or a name. I believe that the Spirit of God has invitations for every single one of us to grow in this, this area of empathy and sacrifice as we learn together how to love well. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you continue to help us be open to the invitations you have for us. And give us the grace to respond to those invitations, even though they might be challenging. Come, home.